Thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the uh, privilege that we have to look at it, to be instructed from it, to be built up by it. We need your grace. We pray, Father, that you would help us to not only listen with our heads, but to obey with our hearts. We thank you for these things. We commit it to you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let me ask you a few questions this morning, and let me give you a hint as to the answer. All the questions have the same answer. So are you ready? Here we go. What will be critical at the final judgment? What is the primary goal of all teaching and instruction? What is the highest affection? Okay, let me, let me lobby a softball here. What's the greatest command? That's right, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. At the final judgment, it's our love for God, our love for Christ, that will be discerned based on how we loved even the least of His brethren. And love for one another and ultimately for God is the goal of our instruction, 1 Timothy tells us. And love is the highest, the most holy affection of the soul. It's the greatest of all commands, the Bible tells us. Now, of course, most of you knew that. I'm not really instructing you with that. But it's not a matter of simply knowing that's the problem. It's not a simply a matter of knowing that's the problem. We know that love is the greatest. It's a matter of not doing. That's the problem. Of not doing. Now, of course, the new birth by faith alone in Christ produces a new heart, a heart that's full of love for God, a heart that's full of love for our neighbor. But hearts, even regenerated hearts, need refueled. They need reinvigorated. They need refreshed. For our adversary, the devil, is continually prowling, seeking to bring us down, to dull our love for God, to weaken our faith in God, to trip up our obedience to God. So here's the question. What is it that fuels, that fills up our souls with fresh love for God? As we go along our Christian path, what reinvigorates our hearts day by day with an obedient passion to seek God's glory? I believe our passage this morning holds the key to that question. But before we jump in, let's put our text in its context. Now, as you've been studying the Gospel of Matthew, you know that we're in the section that emphasizes Jesus' authority, starting in chapter 8 and verse 1. In chapter 8, verses 1 to 17, there was a series of miraculous healings. A leper was, was healed. A centurion's servant was healed. Peter's mother-in-law in Capernaum. Jesus' base of operation, uh, she was healed, and then many were healed, and many demons were exercised, it says there at the, ver- at the end of that section. Of course, in Matthew 8, verses 23 to 27, Jesus calmed 
the storm. And then again, Matthew 8, 28 to 34, he exercised the demons from the two men. All of these are marvelous examples of who Jesus is. Marvelous examples of his authority. His kingdom authority. And of course, that authority is on display in our text as well. So turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Let me just read verse 1. It says, In getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. So he's exercised demons in the Decapolis, the the town of the Gadarenes. That's not Israel. That's across the Sea of Galilee. And he crosses and comes to Capernaum. That's his home. That's his home base of operations, Peter's house. And this sets up the next authority vignette, if you will. And I want you to notice that Matthew's rendering is a topical rendering. It's not a chronological rendering. If we compare it to the Gospel of Mark, uh, we'll see that the demon exorcism uh, was not until Mark 5, whereas our passage was back in Mark 2. That's probably more of a chronological rendering. Matthew is is purposely reorganizing the material to highlight Jesus' authority. So let's pick it up there in verse 2. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. So they brought to him a paralytic. Now, Matthew is lean on the details. You probably know from Mark's account, for instance, that this man's friends actually cut a hole in a thatched roof and lowered him down because it was so crowded they couldn't get in. Matthew's not interested in those details. The bottom line is he's a paralytic. He's got some sort of paralysis and he's on a bed. And it says, seeing their faith, Now, that's not just a superfluous detail. It's important to understand that this whole miracle is is activated, if you will, by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So it's the faith not only of the friends, but I believe the faith of the paralytic as well. They're all coming to Jesus Christ believing that he can heal them. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus pronounces the man forgiven. Now this seems a little odd. The man needs healed. And the assumption, I'm sure, is that Jesus would heal just like he did in all of chapter 8. But instead, Jesus surprises everybody by pronouncing this man forgiven. And we need to just stop for a minute to investigate what we can see and learn from that pronouncement. It shows us the relationship between sin and sickness. I mean, you understand that all sickness, which ultimately culminates in death, that's the wages of sin. Now, don't be confused. I'm not saying that every time you're sick, that points to a specific sin that you've committed. I'm not saying that at all. 
But in the grand scheme of things, the reason we get sick, the reason that we die, it is not because of COVID-19. It's not because of cancer. It's not because of heart disease. It's not because of diabetes. It's not because of an accident or because we were murdered. It's because of sin. Sin is the ultimate cause for all of our frailties, all of our sickness, all of our death. It's the just wage of sin. Now you know that because when we get to heaven, when Jesus returns and the new heavens and the new earth reign, there'll be no sickness. There'll be no death. There'll be no sadness. There'll be no tears. So Jesus is showing the relationship between sin and sickness in this passage. But he's also showing his authority to forgive sins. He's declaring in the boldest of terms, I have the authority to forgive this man's sins. But to the scribes, it's nothing but audacity. It's nothing but blasphemy. Pick it up with me in verse 3. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? So they say, this man blasphemes. This is what the the scribes are thinking in their own minds. And... In one sense, you can see their point, for they understand that no one can forgive sins but God alone. That's right. That's right. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, verse 4, He knows their evil thoughts that they're having toward Him. And so, He confronts them with this question, which is easier to say? Now, to the scribes, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven since there's no way to prove one way or another that the sins have actually been forgiven. And therefore it's harder to say get up and walk to the scribes. But by implication it's much harder to say and execute your sins are forgiven since only God can forgive sins. So what does Jesus do? What does he do? Well, let's pick it up in verse 6. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man. Now this is the most often used self-description by Jesus. And I believe the most significant Old Testament description. Turn back to the prophet Daniel. So if you just go to the middle of your Bibles, Isaiah, and turn right, and go a few prophets forward, 
right after Ezekiel, you'll hit Daniel. Go to Daniel chapter 7. Now, at Christ Memorial Church, right now there would be snickering in the congregation because the congregation knows that probably my favorite Old Testament book is Daniel. So they snicker because they have figured that once again, I have figured out how to slip in a verse from the book of Daniel. Um, I'm not sneaking in a verse from the book of Daniel. This is precisely where Jesus is coming from when he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Pick it up in verse 13, Daniel 7. Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That's a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Son of Man. And that was corroborated by Jesus in Mark chapter 14. Let's turn to there and see that Jesus is clear that that Daniel prophecy applies to him. Verse 61, this is Christ's trial before the high priest. And in verse 61 of Mark chapter 14, it says, But he kept silent, Jesus kept silent, and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. What did Jesus say just before he ascended? You'll get to that later on in Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority has been given to me, both in heaven and on earth. What did Peter preach on the day of Pentecost in in Acts chapter 2? That by virtue of his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God, God has declared him both Lord and Christ. This Son of Man language is a language of authority. It's the language of power. And Jesus is saying, so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Jesus is God. He's God the Son. And God has authority to forgive sins. And God has authority to heal the body. We know that's ultimately His plan. And The Old Testament connects these two in a beautiful way that makes sense of what Jesus does. Turn back to Psalm 103. This is one of the things we do with our interns at Christ Memorial Church in our NETS program, is I'll just pick a psalm and I'll say, connect the dots and see how this prophesies Christ. This psalm beautifully prophesies Christ's work of redemption, and particularly in our narrative here in uh, Matthew chapter 9. Pick it up in verse 1 of Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. Now listen to verse 3. Who pardons all your iniquities, who heals 
all your diseases. We saw earlier in Matthew chapter 8, Matthew quoting Isaiah 53 about healing all of our diseases. In fact, it says there that he was doing that healing to fulfill Isaiah 53. And here, notice the link between pardoning your iniquities and healing all your diseases. Pop back to Matthew chapter 9. See, Jesus fulfills this psalm in verse 6. He says, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your bed, and go home. You see, doing harder in the scribe's eyes, that is, healing his body, proves to them that he's doing what they see as the easier thing, forgiving his sins. It's really the harder thing, isn't it? There's irony, biting irony going on here. But he accommodates them and thus fulfills the scriptures as the Lord of glory. Because God is the one who pardons all of our iniquities, who heals our bodies. Amen. And it says in verse 7, that the paralytic got up and went home. Game over. Mic drop. Nothing more to be said. Jesus is Daniel's son of man. Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Since God alone has authority to forgive sins, Jesus is God. And how about the crowd's response? Verse 8, if you would. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck. They were afraid, the ESV translates. That's a better translation. And glorified God, who had given such authority to men. They were afraid. You know, when you're in God's presence, fear is not an illegitimate response. I mean, this is God's Son in their presence. The Bible says that fear is the beginning of wisdom. You see, the crowd realizes it's standing in the very presence of God, standing in the very presence of the divine Messiah, of God Almighty, who alone has power to forgive sins. And they're afraid. So it's a healthy thing. They weren't just afraid. They glorified God. They glorified God who had given such authority to men. Jesus has the authority to heal the body. We saw that in abundance in chapter 8. Again here with the paralytic. And that proves that Jesus, the promised Son of Man, does indeed have authority to forgive sins. So how should that affect us this morning? First, it should cause us to marvel that God's forgiveness is even available to us. I remember when I was doing some open-air preaching at the University of Vermont. That's the flagship university in my state. And there was a pretty good crowd gathered. 
It's kind of like our own little amphitheater, Mars Hill kind of arrangement there right in front of the library at the University of Vermont. And one of the guys yelled out. It was a bit of a raucous group, but still intelligent questions. One of the students yelled out, you know, if Christianity is the only way, how come millions of people have never heard the name of Jesus Christ? I thought that was a pretty good question. And I said, well, there's, there's a flaw in your reasoning. You've got a false premise there. And the premise is that everyone deserves to hear about Jesus Christ. You see, we, we certainly don't deserve to be forgiven. We're sinners. But we don't even deserve a chance to be forgiven. Do you, do you realize if you're here right now and you're listening to the gospel, that's, that's sheerly by God's grace. You don't deserve that. No. Sinners, which we all are, deserve only one thing. Death. That's the rage that our sin earns. We are justly damned. There's no injustice in any of it. It's exactly fitting. The punishment exactly fits the crime. And so we should marvel. I think we should just step back and marvel that forgiveness is even available. But second, that forgiveness came only at an immeasurable cost to God. It required Him sending the Son of Man, the God-Man, the Word made flesh, His mystery all, Tis mystery all, the immortal dies, who can explore his strange design. That God-man came and he took the curse that we deserve, that our sins deserved. He experienced the judgment. He bore our sins and the wrath those sins deserved when he died on the cross. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? The third, we should marvel that this Son of Man, and we should take comfort that this Son of Man alone has the authority to forgive sins. And not just the authority. But as our text so clearly shows, the willingness, the willingness to forgive sins. I'm wondering about those that are here that may still be outside of Christ. I wonder if you know how good this news really is. We've got a lot of news that's not very good these days. This is really Really good news. That Jesus Christ is willing to forgive your sins. And that He has the authority as the Son of Man to forgive your sins. He wants to forgive you. 
And He can forgive you based on His death, burial, and resurrection. And so I, I would ask you, honestly, sincerely, what's holding you back from embracing this good news? Are you confused? Do you think somehow you're going to escape death? Do you think somehow you're going to escape God's judgment? Who do you think you are? No. No. My goodness. Is there any reason for you to stay cursed this morning, dear unbeliever? For you to remain under the wrath of God, unbeliever? Is there any reason to continue that? Do you, do you want to suffer God's eternal wrath? You can't want to do that. There's no way that that's what you want. I say, oh dear one, come to Christ. Come to Christ. Make this truly a happy Thanksgiving weekend. Come to Christ. Embrace Christ. Let Him be your curse. Let Him be your payment. Let Him be your satisfaction before God. Christ wants to forgive. And Christ can forgive. Let Him forgive you this morning. I appeal to you. You won't be disappointed. But going back to our introduction this morning, you might ask, well, Wes, how does this help me to stay fervent as a believer in my love for Jesus Christ? You know, actually, that's pretty easy. I'm wondering if you remember the story of the woman in ill repute, the woman of ill repute, probably a prostitute, in Luke chapter 7, who attended the dinner for Christ as a celebrated rabbi hosted by Simon the Pharisee. I'm remembering if you remember that story, Luke chapter 7. Remember Jesus had come in and nobody had washed his feet, dried his feet or anointed his head with olive oil. None of those normal customary things had been done. He had already reclined for dinner. And this woman who had attended, it was not uh, a breach of propriety to attend a dinner uh, when a, a famous teacher was in town. So she took advantage of that custom. She attended. But noticing that nothing had been done for him, the text says that she washed her feet, his feet, uh, with her tears. You know, you gotta, you gotta do a fair amount of crying to generate enough moisture to wash a grown man's feet. She washes his feet with her tears. And then the text says that she, she dried her feet, his feet, with her hair. Just imagine that position for a moment. You're so close. I mean, she probably had long hair, but how long is it? You know, she's pretty close. She's, she's using her hair to dry the feet that she's just washed with her tears. And then the story says, well, she's already down there, why not? She begins to kiss his feet with her lips. Imagine that. She's kissing his feet with her lips. And then she takes some very expensive, not the common olive oil, the cheap, everyday 
olive oil. She takes some very expensive perfume. And as a gesture of honor, she anoints his head with this perfume. And here's the question. Why did she do that? Why did this woman carry on so in a public context? Jesus said it this way in Luke 7, verse 47. He said, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. Referring to what she had just done. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Referring to what Simon the Pharisee didn't do. You see, the woman loved Jesus much as symbolized by the washing of his feet with her tears and the drying of his feet with her hair and the kissing of her feet with, of his feet with her lips and the anointing of his head with expensive oil. She loved Jesus much because she had been forgiven much. Unlike Simon the Pharisee, who as a result, showed little love to Christ. Now here's the question. And the key to a reinvigorated love for Christ as we go along our journey. Have you been forgiven little or much, dear Christian? Do you act more like Simon the Pharisee or this woman of ill repute? Do you view yourself as a rather respectable sinner? Or do you see yourself as a disgusting, God-offending, hell-deserving sinner saved solely by grace? You see, that's what paves the way for being refreshed in my love for Christ. This is what lights the path to refueling my passion for Christ. It lies in our contemplation of the depth of our sins. It lies in our contemplation of the number of our sins. It lies in the contemplation of the ugliness of our sins, of the awful, horrifying, eternal punishment that our sins justly deserve. You see, the woman was quite aware that she was a sinner. And yet her tears were not tears of sorrow. They were tears of joy because she had been forgiven by Christ. That's what that sin leads us to remember, that we've been forgiven, to contemplate the grace of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, the willingness of Christ to bear all my sins, every stinking, hell-deserving one of my sins, so that I can sing my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. 
I wrote the words of the chorus we sang this morning because it moved my heart. Oh, praise the praise the Lord, uh, praise the Lord, the Lord our God. Oh, praise His name forevermore. For endless days we'll sing God's praise. Oh Lord, oh Lord, our God. Yes, and why? Because He has given us His Son, who died for our sins, rose again on the third day. You may be here this morning and you feel, yeah, you know, Wes, my love, it does feel a little cool right now. I'm not really feeling the passion. It needs to be refilled. It needs to be reinvigorated, refreshed. I want that. I want God to do that, to fill me with Himself so that I might love Him with all my heart and soul and mind and strength. And then I say to you, dear brother and sister in Christ, contemplate that monster within called sin. And then soak, soak in the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of God for us in Christ. Forgave our sins. Soak in that until you're filled up with it. Until you're refreshed by it. For he who is forgiven much, he loves much. Dear one, if you know Christ this morning, you're not Simon the Pharisee. You're the woman of ill repute. You have been forgiven much. Never lose sight of that. Continually bask in that. And never tire of praising God for that. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you. We praise the name of the Lord our God. We praise his name forever. For endless days we will sing God's praise. And we'll do it because you have sent your only begotten Son to die for sinners like us. Hell deserving, disgusting sinners like us. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Thank you. Bless you. We praise you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.